You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I hate myself. I look in the mirror and I hate what I see. I am too fat. I am too skinny. My body is not shaped the right way. I am a failure. People hate me. Thoughts and feelings like this prevail, and they are powerful, they are crippling, and they are dangerous. It's thoughts and feelings of inferiority that we have seen in our study of Genesis have led Joseph's brothers to first deliberate on murdering him and then later selling him into slavery. Starts with thoughts. We have neighbors, we have loved ones, we have friends who are entertaining these thoughts. And these thoughts and feelings are motivating them to do dreadful things, starving themselves to death. I went to school with a woman that starved herself to death. She died because she quit eating. I have a cousin that nearly did that to herself. It leads us to um, plunge needles into our arms. It leads us to shut ourselves out from everyone. The good news is that Christ brings healing to this. The good news is that we're sitting on the answer. We're sitting on the cure. And we're going to read our text here in a moment. And as we read our text, you're going to be wondering, how in the world does our text speak to this? But I hope to show in the next half hour or so that our text speaks very, very powerfully to uh, this very thing. And as I have largely spoken about folks out there who have these feelings. The fact that I got your attention so quickly with this really um, affirms what I already know is that we entertain these feelings from time to time too, don't we? I know I do. If you look at verse 16, we're going to read from verse 16 to 21, Genesis 49, 16 to 21. where we find these words, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fonts. 
Let's begin praying, shall we? Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning to be our teacher and our guide. We look to you, O Father, to instruct us, to open your word to our hearts and our hearts which are always so lethargic. Open our sluggish hearts to your word, Father. Open our eyes to see the things that you're teaching here, Father, for they are wonderful. Fill us, O Father, with wonder of your truth and wonder of yourself, wonder of Christ, wonder over how much you love us. O Father, fill us with these things, we pray. Amen and amen. We continue in our study, and our study was moving very quickly until we got to chapter 49, and you'll notice we've slowed way down, <laughs> and we're kind of moving almost at a crawl, and this morning, and really, our text this morning really is just one single verse, it's verse 16. Uh, that's really the text this morning. However, I've read from verse 16 to 21, and there's a point that I want to make there, but first, for the context, the context is we've seen... Uh, over and over again. The context is at the bedside. Jacob is literally on his deathbed. He has called his sons together to gather around, and he's been, he's been uh, giving blessing to each one of the sons. But more importantly than that, we have seen, and I've mentioned in earlier studies, that Jacob simply isn't just giving wishful thinking in a hallmark kind of way. He's not just simply sitting there, laying there on his bed, offering best wishes to his sons. He is speaking as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And literally, as his vocal cords, his dying vocal cords are being energized, it is actually the word of God that is coming forth from his lips. He is informing his sons what shall happen to them in the future. There is no human being that can do that. He's looking down through the quarters of time and he is telling his sons what is going to happen become of that. And he's doing so with incredible accuracy, perfect accuracy, speaking in some cases, many centuries down, down the corridors of time. And of course, that's a sermon for another day. There's an incredible apologetic right there uh, that is very useful, actually, uh, in uh, affirming a doctrine of scripture, if you will. I'll just set that on the side. You can just put that on the shelf. We'll, we'll, we'll come to that some other time. But uh, what is what is Jacob been doing? Well, it makes sense that he starts with Reuben. Reuben is his firstborn. I don't think it's anyone's surprise other than that he didn't start with Joseph, but he's dealt with Joseph in the a previous chapter, has he not? So we kind of think he would start with Joseph. I mean, kind of. I think the brothers would kind of expect him to start with Joseph. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the fact that he starts with Reuben makes sense. Reuben is the firstborn. And then he speaks of Simeon and Levi, then Judah. And then, you know, all that makes sense because what is the birth order? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. But then the birth order is broken, isn't it? I pointed this out a little bit last week, but I want to point it out further this week. Because he goes, he, first of all, he skips all the way down to Zebulun and Issachar. But Issachar is older than Zebulun, and Zebulun is mentioned first. And I don't know. Last week I said, I, I don't know the reason for that. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, but it's interesting. And what we clearly see here is what Jacob is doing is he's starting out with the sons who have been born to Leah. That's what all of these 
uh, six men have in common. They were born to Leah. And after that, he goes to Dan. And the order is Dan, then Gad, then Asher, then Naphtali. Now, what is so surprising about that? Well, there's a number of things that are surprising about that. One is notice how Dan and Naphtali are separated. And if you'll recall, and it might be hard to recall this detail, but Dan and Naphtali are blood brothers. They have been born to Bilhah. Whereas Gad and Asher are blood brothers, they've been born to Zilpah. Now, I think it's very interesting that we have Dan and Naphtali making up the front of the train in the caboose, if you will. And in earlier studies, I've mentioned, you know, this, uh, uh, how do I choose the text that I choose to preach from? What criteria do I use? I mean, how do we choose when to start and when to stop? And I've explained that you're always looking for what we might call bookends. Uh, uh, formally, it's called an inclusio, but it's like brackets, if you will. If you think of brackets and you're looking for one coherent thought or you're looking for one coherent theme or you're looking for, you know, you're looking at the text. And, and sometimes it's easy. Sometimes you can see it quite clearly. Other times it's more difficult. But I think what we have here is a set of bookends where we have Dan... And then Gad and Asher, and then Naphtali. Now, what do these four men have in common? Their mothers are servants, right? And in order to see this, we need to get down into, there's actually about, I think about four layers we need to get down into. We need to get down into a cultural layer. We need to get down into a family layer. We need to get down into an emotional layer. And we need to get down into the foundation of what God is doing in the midst of all of this. And we can do all that, I think, at one time as we go. That might sound real complicated, but I think you'll find it's not so, it's not so bad. The family dynamics here around this bed are complicated. They're actually extremely complicated. Does this family have a few issues? Oh, boy. Does this family have a few issues? Let's start from the beginning. Jacob the trickster, he deceives his father, he deceives his brother, and he's given the assignment to go up to his uncle Laban's to find a wife. And he, he, you know, you could have said he just strolled up there, but in actuality, he fled up there. He gets up there and he meets Rachel, doesn't he? His eyes, you know, Laban's daughter, Rachel, his eyes meet her eyes. And I don't know if you believe in love at first sight, but you ought to believe in love at first month. Because within a month, Jacob loves Rachel so much that he goes to her father Laban and says, listen, I will labor seven years for her hand in marriage. And he agrees. And we're told one of the most romantic passages for sure in Genesis, and I think one of the most beautiful passages in Genesis, is the line where Jacob, he labors for Rachel for seven years, and they just seem like a few days. Isn't that beautiful? Ladies, is that beautiful? Would you like to, you know, your, your husband to have labored for you for seven years, and they just seem like a couple of days because he loves you so very much. I'm not trying to get any fellows in hot water here. But it's beautiful, isn't it? 
I think it's beautiful. It's a beautiful story of real, sincere, and deep love. But there's a problem, isn't there? On the, on the morning after the wedding, Jacob wakes up thinking he's with Rachel, only to discover he's with Rachel's sister. Now, I can't even begin to get my mind around that. And I have tried. Um, I mean, I think, I, think, I, I, I think that most of us fellas, I think, you know, we would recognize that Leah has needs. Leah desires to be loved just like Rachel does. Leah desires to be cherished just like everyone else does in this room. Has a desire to be cherished and cared for and loved. And there Jacob is realizing this and realizing that his protest about this is going to be an assault on that. I mean, where is he at here? How loudly does he want to protest this? How loudly, how loudly does he want to stammer around? But his heart is with Rachel. This isn't right. This isn't what he's agreed to. And he goes to Laban. And he says, hey, what's up? Laban says, you've got to work seven more years for Rachel. Of course, he agrees. He loves Rachel. But now he's, he's married to two women. And just, if we just consider the three of them right now, think of that dynamic. I mean, Rachel is probably fairly secure, but she's sharing her husband with her sister. Leah's got to be insecure. Leah's got to be insecure. Insecurity is not a fun feeling. I mean, insecurity cuts very deep. It cuts very deep. It leaves scars. And then the family that begins to grow. Leah, she's fruitful. You know, she bears Reuben. You know, and I think Rachel probably knows her place. This is not far from ideal, but she knows her place. She knows she has Jacob's heart, but, you know, Reuben, Jacob's spending all this time with Reuben, and, you know, Reuben has her sister's eyes, and Reuben has her sister's cheeks, and, you know, Reuben just said, Mommy, the first time, and Reuben just took his first steps, and he just said, Daddy, and Jacob's always over at Leah's place, you know, with Reuben. Then along comes Simeon, and along comes Levi, and along comes Judah. Now, it should be no surprise to us that finally Rachel's jealousy breaks forth. I mean, I think she went a long time, actually. What do you think? Her jealousy breaks forth, and she looks at the cultural layer that's here. There's a cultural layer here. You know, there's an emotional layer. There's a family layer. There's a culture layer. According to the culture, that time it was lawful for a woman of means. If she could not bear her husband's children, she could give her servant to her husband. He would marry her, and then she could have children through her servant. So in enters Bilhah. And Bilhah is, Bilhah, you know, pretty quickly... Bilhah gives birth to Dan. Okay, legally, Dan is Rachel's. Biologically, Dan, and make no mistake about it, Dan is Bilhah's. She carried Dan in her womb. And Dan has Bilhah's eyes and Bilhah's cheeks. 
allow me a little speculation here to bring out this dynamic. I don't know what Dan looked like or what Bilhah looked like, but I think you get the picture. And then along comes Naphtali. And Naphtali just took his first steps and everybody's excited. And where's Bilhah in this? She's got to share this with, with Rachel. And not much gets ever said about Bilhah. I've brought this up in, in earlier studies. You know, even in all the reading I've done on this, I don't know a lot gets said about Bilhah or Zilpah, but they have needs too. They have feelings too. They're no different than Rachel. They're no different than Leah. And you see this tug of war between Leah and between Rachel, but what about Bilhah? What about Zilpah? They're women who have needs. They, is this, is it, it, what we're seeing here is the hideousness of polygamy. This is the hideousness of polygamy. And sometimes people will, they'll object to uh, Ju- uh, Judea, Christian values because of this. They'll say, I cannot believe in a God who is for polygamy. And how should we answer that? Well, we don't serve a God that's for polygamy. God tolerated polygamy for a time, but we do not serve a God that has that is woven polygamy into the design of creation. How do I know that? Genesis 2. You know, I share this at weddings. When I've officiated weddings, I've shared this at every single one of them. You know, I share the fact that that the institution of marriage is not a man-made institution. You know, in in our arrogance, we are redefining this. And it's absolutely arrogant to redefine this and to mess with this. Because we're playing God in doing so. But in our arrogance, God designed marriage. And marriage is between one man and one woman. And we are told in Genesis that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And you have this one flesh dynamic that has no room for three It doesn't say that he shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wives. He shall leave and hold fast to his wife. It's so very important that we see that. Now, if we deviate that, if we want to play God and we want to deviate that, this is what we get. This is what we get. This this is the wages of our sin. We have this, this dynamic here. We haven't even got to the kids yet. We're only talking about the moms right now. I ain't even said much about Jacob, but I talked a lot about Jacob through the, through the whole course of things, so I'm not going to add to that this morning. But let's take this down to another level. Here, we're in the family level here. I mean, because after, after uh, Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher are born, then Leah has two more sons, right? Issachar and Zebulun. Now, uh, Leah has had six sons. Six of the 12 tribes of Israel, six of those that's come from Leah. Leah is the mother of half the tribes of Israel. And then the servants, Bilhah and Zilpah, they are mothers of four tribes. We have two left. Rachel finally bears a son. Now, we can, we can appreciate how special this would be to Jacob because Rachel is, no matter, no matter what is going on here, Rachel is still the love of his life. I mean, what did he desire? He desired to be married to Rachel, to have children with Rachel. And she bears a son, Joseph. And it should be no surprise that Joseph is the favorite. Why is Joseph the favorite? Well, there's many reasons for that. But one reason 
One really important reason is because Rachel is the favorite. Well, Joseph grew up in this favoritism thing. His mom favored him. His dad favored his brother. He grew up in this. So some of this is going to work its way down into his family, of course. The sins we grow up with, many of them we're going to bring into our family. Uh, That's just how it goes. But um, here we have first fiddle. Who's first fiddle? Rachel very clearly is first fiddle. First fiddle. And uh, uh, that makes Joseph... I mean, we've seen this very clearly. This is not conjecture on my part, speculation in any way. Joseph is the favorite. This, this, this hands down, no question. Joseph is the favorite. Rachel's the favorite. Leah is second fiddle. And where does that put the sons? Well, we're sons of a second fiddle mom. Whether they ever come out and say it or not, it's understood. It's those lines that are in families, you know. These lines and these little boundaries, they're in families, they're in social groups. They're all over the place. These little lines of hierarchy, superiority and inferiority. These these lines that are all over the place. Reuben is firstborn, but he's firstborn to second fiddle. Leah, Simeon and Leah, second fiddle brothers. Judah, second fiddle. But... Um, Benjamin, first fiddle. When Joseph is lost, Benjamin takes over. Benjamin, first fiddle. Where does that put Dan and Naphtali? Well, third fiddle? Maybe not. Maybe an argument could be made that they're second fiddle because after all, Bilhah is Rachel's servant. You see, if 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 I'm a servant of someone, uh, and if I'm a servant of somebody low, then that's low. But if I'm a servant of someone who's very high, well, then by virtue of being servant of someone very high, I might be able to really, you know, stand up straight. So after all, I mean, yeah, my mom is a servant, but she's Rachel's servant. What about the other two, Gad and Asher? Fourth fiddle? One writer, Jim, James Boyce, see, he suggests that this order is really because this is the way the, the sons are congregating around the bed. And that's conjecture, and he admits it's conjecture. But he also points out to something interesting, that, but I think people would, we, we do tend tendencies to fall into these kind of groups, you know, you'd think the, the six brothers would kind of gather together in a time like this because they share the same mom. And, you know, you could almost see, you know, Dan, maybe, you know, Dan, Gad, and Asher, and Naphtali all kind of gathering together because their moms are servants, and this is the pecking order, and this is the way it goes. And, of course, with this kind of a family dynamic going on, I think it's very interesting that the order here and is Dan first and Naphtali last. What do I, I'll tell you what I think this is all about. Dan and Naphtali are a set of brackets here, and Gad and Asher are in between. And this is encompassing. This is encompassing something here that is so very, very important for us to see. Notice what's said in verse 16. Dan shall judge his people. And before I go to the next line, let's think for a minute. Let's see if we can get in Dan's shoes for a minute. And this is a little bit of conjecture, okay? This is conjecture. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's, it's, let's think this through for a minute. Should Dan be surprised that Reuben has gone first? I don't think so. I mean, I think we would, 
probably be expecting Joseph to go first. But Joseph has been dealt with in a previous chapter. That Reuben is first, I don't think, surprise. Simeon and Levi, no, that's no surprise. Judah, no surprise. Now, that Zebulun and, and Issachar, okay, there's that line again. That's not the birth order. Dan's getting skipped. Gad and Asher are getting skipped. Naphtali are getting skipped. Well, we're used to that. Fair enough. We're used to that. Okay, Leah's kids are first. It's the way it always is in this family. But then Dan's name's called. And uh, what, what, is, what is Dad going to say to me? Well, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. What? Oh, Dan, you're, you're going to be the head of one of the tribes of Israel. You, you mean to tell me that, like, I'm going to be on an equal standing with Issachar and Zebulun? Yeah. And the commentaries are almost unanimous in, in this point that what is said here of Dan is certainly being implied to Gad and to Asher and to Naphtali. That they will all be one of the tribes of Israel. And of course we see that through this. How would you disagree with that? Now, what has God done? Those lions of inferiority and superiority, what is God doing to that? He's smashing that. In fact, he's removing that. He's taking that away. He's taking it away. Now, if we go back to the way that I introduced myself, I hate myself. I, I look in the mirror and, and I hate what I see. I'm too fat. I'm too ugly. I'm, I'm a failure. Well, a lot of this has to do with when we think this way, what, what are we thinking? Well, we're thinking lots of things. We're complex creatures. But these are all statements of inferiority. But um, what actually gives us value? You know, we, we think that value comes from within. We think that value comes from ourselves. If we're shaped a certain way, or if we have a certain title, or if we work for a certain uh, 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 department, or if we're the CEO of a particular firm, or if we have one of those jobs up there that everybody looks up to, then we're very valuable. Is that where value comes from? Well, we, we shake our heads, no, you know, and then there's this theological side of us says, no, I know that's not where my value comes from. My value comes from the fact that I've been created in the image of God. I know that. But let's be truthful here. To many of us, that is a real abstract thing that you can't feel, taste, or touch, isn't it? I want to know, as soon as we slander someone, in the moment we're doing that, that whole image of God thing has collapsed. It's collapsed long ago. Um, I think that if we could get this one, I think it would, we would no longer slander anyone if we could get this one. I mean, that's how important this one is. What, where, where is my value derived? First of all, it's not derived by me or anything within me. My value is external to me. My value is derived in the fact 
that I've been created in the image of God. This is what we have to say to ourselves. And now the freight of this is carried by how much we value God. How big is God? How majestic is God? How huge is God? How powerful is God? You see, our doctrine of God, this whole thing sits and rests on our doctrine of God and who we believe He is and who we understand Him to be. If we see Him as glorious as we see Him as He is revealed in Scripture, then it's not an easy thing to slander someone who is created in His image. The angels won't do that. The holy angels, for for that matter. So you see, it all comes down to to that freight of who we understand God to be. What, What gives each one of us value? The fact that we've been created in the image of God. Now, that is respective of every human being alive on the planet. As we're thinking about value, let's take this a step further. Because if you're in Christ, well then, there's... A very, there's a very important matter that we need to tend to. There's a, there's a step that we need to climb. Actually, there's a huge staircase that we need to climb that goes much further. And for that, um, I would ask you to turn with me to First Peter, First Peter, chapter one. And for sake of context, I think we'll just begin reading in verse thirteen. But verse eighteen and nineteen are are the verses that, are in, that I have in mind here. But just for sake of context, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. I'll just read through the context quickly until we get to verse 18. Verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now that's dense. That's what we call dense. You read that, you can read that, and and then you can close the book and you can say, okay, let me write down everything I got out of that. And you could very well have a blank page, couldn't you? Ah, it's dense. It takes a lot of reflection and meditation on this line by line to get this. But let, let, let me try to make this as easy as possible. You know, if you're in the market for a house, and you're, you're wise before you buy the house to get an appraisal on the house. And now, why would that be wise? Because you need to know what the, the house is worth. So, and if you get a loan through a mortgage company, they're definitely going to require an appraiser because they're not going to invest in the house until they know what it's worth. Now, how is the value of the home determined? Well, an appraiser comes, views the house, looks at the condition of the house, looks at the location of the house, looks through a number of concrete criteria, and then goes throughout the neighborhood as closely as possible to that house, looking for homes that are as similar as possible that have sold recently. 
Now, what those homes that have sold, whatever they brought, whatever they sold for, that gives the appraisal an idea of what people are willing to spend on the house. And that determines its value. Well, this house is similar to four other houses that sold for $100,000. So we have no reason to believe that this house shouldn't sell for $100,000. It should be within a window, plus and minus something. But in other words, the value is established by what people are willing to pay. What we can clearly see, the market will pay. Does that make sense? Okay, in our text, in verse 18, we are told the believer, he or she is told that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our fathers. In other words, we are ransomed from darkness. In other words, we have been bought. We have been purchased. We have been delivered from the darkness that we were walking in. At what cost? How much gold? And who is doing, who is doing this? The Father is doing this. The Father is purchasing this. At what cost? How much gold? If it said $1,000 worth of gold, well then, we're worth $1,000. Because that's what the Father was willing to pay to ransom us. Does that make sense? If it's a half a million dollars worth of gold, well then, we're worth a half a million. Because that's what the Father was willing to pay. That's the number. If it's five million, then we're worth... 5 million. But if you look at verse 18, we were not purchased with silver or gold. What were we purchased with? We were purchased with the precious blood of Christ. What were we worth to the Father? When our father looked down on our pitiful and miserable condition, what was it worth to him to ransom us from it? Gold? Mm -mm. Silver? If it isn't gold, it certainly isn't silver. In almost all cultures, gold has been more valuable than silver. No. It's much greater than that. It's the death of his son. The death of Christ. That's what we're worth to him. So how can we say in knowledge of this, I hate myself? How can a believer say that? Unless he has lost or she has lost her way. How can we look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm too fat. Well, okay, maybe we need to lose some weight. Or I'm too skinny. I've been starving myself. Well, maybe you ought to gain some weight. But this has nothing to do with your value. In fact, don't even look to yourself for your value, you see. You see how Jesus speaks to this issue? You see how the gospel speaks to this issue of inferiority? Dan, you shall judge, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes. What is God doing? He's trashing these lines that are real. They're real lines. You think that Dan imagined that he was third fiddle in the family? You think it was just a product of his imagination? Maybe some of it, all of it, absolutely not. 
You think the brothers imagined that they were second fiddle to Joseph? No. Some of it, but not all, not all of it. Joseph was the favorite. They, they harbored those feelings and those inferiority feelings are crippling and they're dangerous and they're powerful. It led them to do this, atroc- this atrocious act. They nearly killed him. If it weren't for God, they would have killed him. They sold him into slavery. They can lead us to starve ourselves to death. They can lead us to plunge needles into our arms. This isn't nothing to mess with. If these feelings are not attended to by the ministry of the gospel, all hell can break loose from these things. And we've got neighbors, and we've got loved ones, and we've got members of our family that are right here, and sometimes we find ourselves right there. If you're in Christ Jesus, what do we do as soon as we start thinking that way? We start thinking of what our real value is. We're created in the image of God. And if that doesn't carry any weight with us, then we need to get busy and start studying our doctrine of God. Because the more progress we make in our doctrine of God, the more that's going to mean. And the more that means, the more that's going to be an antidote to help us when we're feeling this way. But if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, oh my, do I have any business thinking these thoughts? No. I need to talk myself out of it immediately. You see, you can minister to yourself this way. You know, I can be a bum on the street. I mean, I can be completely out. But am I valuable? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, really, I mean, a charge to the church, really, is if we really believe this, then we're going to be sure that we get the gospel to all people, aren't we? The fact that we can be so indifferent to the lost, just, it, it, my heart stagger, it staggers me sometimes that I can be so indifferent to the lost, that I can get all caught up in, you know, the church stuff and all caught up in this, and I can... And I, and I catch myself. I'm like, Rick, you're absolutely indifferent to the loss. I was really struck by this at the gas pumps just the other day down here at Cheney's. I'm filling up gas, and there was a man there. And I'm, I just struck up conversation with, how you doing? And he seemed like a great man, an elderly man, you know? And we talked for a few minutes, and I got in the car. And I'm like, Rick, why didn't you share the gospel with him? You're going to get in the car and pray for him? Well, I did. But I didn't share the gospel with him. I, I, sometimes I think to myself, it's just staggering. Are you with me there? Of how far we, we have all this theology in our heads, but is, but is, but is it making an impact in our, in our lives? I have one last thing I need to talk about. I don't think that I should introduce a sermon the way I did without saying this. If we're saying I hate myself, I look in the mirror and I don't like what I see, or if we're ministering to someone who is saying that. I think we need to try to tease out of that a distinction. There's an important distinction in this. And the distinction is between acceptance and worship. Sometimes we feel this way because we just want to be accepted. We just simply want to be accepted. But if we're ministering to somebody, or we even find ourselves, we're looking in that mirror, and what we want to see in that mirror is something that looks glamorous and something that looks like what you would expect out of Hollywood on the silver screen. If what we want is people falling down over us, that's another thing altogether, isn't it? I want my body to be shaped in a certain way that it turns heads. And so many people working so hard to have that body that turns away. Listen, that's satanic, everyone. I'll say, what? 
It's satanic. I'll say it louder. I'll say it a third time. It's satanic. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. You say, well, that sounds like a strong word. Well, I chose a strong word. But what is Satan's sin? Does he want to humbly serve God and give glory to God? No. No, his sin is he wants to be God and he wants everyone to worship and bow down to him. And it's exactly, don't flirt with it. It's exactly the same thing. And why do we do it? Because we've been stung with his fangs. And his venom flows through our, ba- our, our veins. As fallen creatures, we're under the dominion of that. And as we come to Christ, we're not completely removed from it. Some of us will have a tendency to do this more than others. So, I mean, some of us that like to work out, and if you like to work out in front of a mirror, I'm going to tell you, just be careful with that. Just be careful with that. If we're feeling a lack of acceptance, that is a good thing because God has created us to be social creatures. But if we're saying this or we're ministering to someone who's saying this, I mean, if, if I was ministering to someone who was shutting themselves off, they're too fat or they're too ugly or they're not shaped the right way, people hate them, I'd want to know what is your goal? When you look in the mirror, what do you really want to see? Are you wanting to be accepted? That's a good thing. If you're wanting, wanting to be worshipped, that's not a good thing. Then your first step, actually, is going to be confessing that you desire the praise of people and you want people to fall down over you and ask the Lord to forgive you for that and ask Him to create in you a new heart. That's what we do with all sin, regardless of what your sin is. That's, 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 the, that's the first step with sin. Lord, I've just discovered this about myself. This has just been made clear. And I, I still want to do it. I still want to go to the gym and work out in the mirror. And I want everybody to stop what they're doing and look at me. Father, forgive me for that. And change my heart so I don't want to do that anymore. Does that make sense? And help me, Lord, to see where my real value is. My real value isn't parading up and down a runway half-dressed. My real value, my real value doesn't even exist in, in me. My real value comes from you. So teach me about you, Lord, so I will value you. And the more I value you, the more I'm ultimately going to value me in a holy and perfect way. But more importantly, I'm not going to want to so much stand as the object of worship of all the people around me. No, what I'm going to want is for the people around me to shine all the brighter. That's a heavenly attitude. A heavenly attitude looks at one another and says, I want you to shine. In fact, I want you to shine as bright as you can shine. I don't even care about how I shine, but I want you to shine. My mind's not even on how I shine. But I want you to shine. And I want you to shine. And you to shine. I want you all to shine. And you do shine. And look at you. Just think about that for a moment and just feel the peace that comes from that. Doesn't it feel like chains have fallen off of you when you start thinking like that? Doesn't it, doesn't it feel like, don't you just feel like you're lighter now? Like you can bounce around or something? I'm not asking you to do that. See, remain in your seats. No bouncing around. We don't need to do that. But do you understand what I'm saying? This is how we overcome feelings of inferiority. 
Heavenly Father, we so thank you for your word, which is truth. It can be nothing but truth. It is the truth. We bask in it this morning, Father. As we think about these tendencies that we sometimes have when things happen to us in the workplace or in the family or even in the church where we're made to feel inferior, there isn't a person in the room, well, Father, who has not been created in your image and therefore are valuable. Oh, Lord, forgive us when we assemble what you are destroying, when we assemble these little lines of superiority and inferiority. Oh, Father, we, we confess that, Father, too often we're busy building these things and making these things, but you're bringing them down. We thank you, O oh Father, that in Christ Jesus they're brought down, that you're a God who shows no partiality, but you're a God who brings those hideous lines down. You don't destroy distinctions between us. We're still distinct from one another. But those sinful lines of inferiority and superiority, Father, forgive us of these things and help us, O oh Father, help us, O oh Father, to see where not only our value truly comes from, but where the value of our brothers and sisters and our fellows, citizens of the neighborhood, where all men and women, where their value comes from, O oh Father. Work this in us, we pray. Work this grace in our hearts all so deeply, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.